Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferentz.com slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome back to Progression, success in the music industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferentz, and this is episode number 83. I had a great chat with composer and musician Pat Irwin on the show today. We got into a ton of stuff like his approach to scoring Dexter New Blood, playing in the B-52s, working with a live band in the studio, the importance of being able to do your own copy work, hiring people that elevate you, and why the world needs more musicians and artists. And it's that last bit that I wanted to get into for this intro. Late in the interview, we touched on the idea that learning music or being an artist or even a creator of any type can set you up for success in anything you decide to do. I really love this idea, so I wanted to give it a little bit more of a highlight earlier in the show. So here we are. Most everybody listening to this is a musician, music producer, engineer, or artist. So pause for a second and think about some of the challenges that you might currently be facing in your career or maybe have just overcome, no matter how long or short your time in music might be. It's probably a lot. There is a lot of stuff that we need to get through to make it in the music industry, or even just to make music, right? First off, you've got to learn an instrument. You're going to spend hundreds of hours practicing an instrument before you're even good enough to play with other people. And then countless more hours before you're really even proficient. Next, you have to learn to listen. It can take years to fully understand the language of music and how to manipulate melody, harmony, and rhythm to get the sound that you have in your head out. Then after all that, you can start making your own music. And the reward for that is that you can learn how to record it, how to release it, how to market it, and then learn how to book shows and perform. So where am I going with all this? Where I'm going is that if you have the mental toughness and knowledge to create and release art, then you have the ability to do anything. Artists have conquered the fear of putting themselves and their art out there. They've grown comfortable being their true and authentic self. They've grown accustomed to learning new skills on a regular basis. They understand the importance of collaboration and how to be a good collaborator. They value human connection. They aren't set back by bumps in the roads. And they are self-starters that put the work in every day because they love doing it. The arts help round a person out and prepare them to take on the world in a way that a business or science degree just doesn't. I think learning music and creating things doesn't just prepare people to take on the world, but it actually empowers them to do so. Think about it. You've already mastered a plethora of skills and gotten over the mental battle of releasing something into the world regardless of whether people will like it. Getting comfortable and confident in releasing music is one of the biggest hurdles young musicians have to face. But once you conquer that, how easy does the rest of the world seem, right? There aren't a lot of things as frightening as putting something out into the world. And musicians and artists do that every day. I think this goes for creating anything, really. Take my podcast, for example. Putting 82 episodes of this podcast out over the last two years has made me more comfortable and confident in a way that nothing else ever has. I'm even more confident delivering mixes to clients. It's pretty wild the effect that it's had. 
And now that I'm transitioning into YouTube, yes, logistically, there are some hurdles that are tough to get over, but from a mental angle, it's easy. I've got zero qualms with putting myself out there. So to close it out, I think a strong foundation in the arts is a super important, if not one of the most important parts of our education. It teaches so much more than just the skill of playing an actual instrument. It empowers and enables people to go so much further in their life. Not everybody will have a career in music, but being an artist or a creative to some extent in your life will set you up with the skills you need to succeed in any field that you might ultimately be drawn to. Today's guest is New York-based composer and musician Pat Irwin. Pat has spent over four decades pushing the boundaries of popular music with his soundtracks for television shows, including Dexter New Blood, Nurse Jackie, Bored to Death, and scores for animations, including Rocco's Modern Life and SpongeBob SquarePants. He also performed with the B-52s for 20 years, was a founding member of two New York no-wave bands, The Ray Beats and Eight-Eyed Spy, and still performs and releases music today with his ambient project, Sus. So super fun one, lots of stuff to get into. Welcome to the show, Pat Irwin. Hey, Pat, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. Uh, you're in New York. Is it starting to get cold there, or is it still okay? Not yet. I mean, the weather's been off the hook beautiful. Yeah, today it got a little chilly, but we know it's coming. It'll be chilly soon enough. <laughs> I'm in LA, and it rained for a couple of days, so everybody's super confused, and nobody knows how to drive. So yeah, luckily, I don't have to leave the house. But uh, so... This morning, I was getting ready for this interview. I was listening to the Dexter soundtrack and really great, you know, very ominous, which obviously fits the uh, context of that, but like really awesome, like analog gritty sounds. Before we get into your past and like your career and stuff, why don't we talk about that project since it's fresh and, and it sounds really great? Well, thank you. It was a real thrill to be involved in a project like that with a character that was so loved by so many people. There was a lot of responsibility. Yeah. And the music played a big part of it. I was a huge fan of most of the original series. I kind of ran out of time. But was it weird to step into something that had an established sound? Were you able to kind of do your own thing? Or was there a little bit of direction like, hey, we need to bring back some of these themes and stuff like that when you were getting into it? Well, there was a little of both. We, we knew we wanted to have a new sound. This was a new character. He wasn't Dexter anymore. He was Jim Lindsay. And he's living in upstate New York. He's not in Miami anymore. And neither are we. We're not in Miami. And we knew we needed a cold, distant sound. And one of the producers was quite specific when he wanted, when he suggested he wanted it to be more ambient. So it wasn't weird, but it was definitely a challenge because we also knew that I needed to adapt and absorb some of Daniel Lick's themes, the blood theme yeah, that was established in the original show. And so, you know, that's a beautiful score. It's beautifully recorded. It's beautifully written. And fits the character. I mean, and people know that music with the character. So it was a challenge to maybe, maybe put a little distance between that character and that music which was part of the show, that he, was, he wasn't that character anymore. Of course, we learned that, you know, you can't change too much by the end of it. <laughs> That's right. I need to go back. I actually haven't seen it, but I feel like I have to because I, I love the first series so much. It felt to me, just listening to it this morning, like maybe like 80% synthetic, but there's definitely some live instrumentation. Is, there, is it mostly synths and everything? Yeah, I mean, 
what happened is I, I would have about two or three guitars available right around me here in my studio. And I've got several amplifiers over here on my left and several on my right. And I would set them up loud. And just, you can hear it on a soundtrack, this kind of humming. I have a couple of very old amplifiers from the 50s with some tremolo that is just pulsing and dark and menacing. Yeah. And I would layer that into the tracks. And then I have a couple other, I have a mini Moog and a, a synthesizer called a cat, which was actually made here in New York. And there was a synthesizer repairman who's no longer here, but he was just down at the end of the alley on the other side of the street. And uh, he actually worked for that company in New York. And it says New York, Long Island City, where my neighborhood is. Nice. And um, he recognized it. He restored this thing. It's very uh, specific. It makes great noise. That's cool. So that's layered in there, along with like more traditional uh, plugins. Right. You said that the name of it was a cat? The company is called Octave, and Behringer makes a plugin. Oh, okay. It's really cool. The B-52s actually used one for a while. Kate played it for the bass. That version was called the kitty. I got the cat, <laughs> if you know what I mean. You got the grown-up version. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it's funny. It's, there's not very often where there's a synth that, um, I mean, I know there's a million synths, but it's not very often that I hear about one that I've never heard of. So I'm going to Google that later. Yeah, please do. That kind of answers some, I was going to ask you about like your, you know, some of those synth textures and, and the dirt and grime, but it sounds like you are an analog guy. That was going to be my question, whether you're doing a lot of stuff in the box now, or if you're stuck to your, what's comfortable, the mini mugs and the, and the cats. <laughs> well, a little of both. I mean, like the cartoon for, let's say Rocco's Modern Life, that was a live band. Right. Nurse Jackie was half in the box, half live band. Bored to Death was all live band, or mostly live band. It just depends what it's called for. Well, since you brought it up, we never really stick to the script on this podcast. There's always tangents everywhere. The live band stuff, what's it like prepping for a session for that, for like some of our younger composers who are all in the box and maybe have like one buddy that plays a guitar or something like that. What do you do to get ready for those live band sessions, like for the board to death or something? Panic. <laughs> <laughs> My experience working in recording studios, that kind of sums it up to a certain extent. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the deadlines are pretty unforgiving. And so preparing the music, you just need to make sure you're prepared, you're, the musicals are all prepared. Because if we're in a studio, uh, you know, just the last thing you want is to have people waiting around. Oh, yeah. You know, I worked on a Disney cartoon called Pepper Ann, where we had copyists of the Disney copying team. And I am forever in their debt because they would come to the sessions. If there were changes that need to be made, they would make them before I could blink and they would be on the, the musician stands. I've never had an experience like that since, but <laughs> I'm glad I got it once. Most of the time when I'm doing these shows, I do the copying myself. Okay. Or I get help from a better copyist. But I just found a picture of me from Rocco's Modern Life when I was doing all the charts by hand. And that was a lot of music. For everybody in the band? By hand? Yeah, by hand. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, I, finale, it was just not practical. Finale wasn't fast enough. I, I use Finale. I use Finale now. 
But I love having a live band. I love that feeling. I love the hanging out with a live musician. I love the fact that live, they make it better. Yep. And then everything is better, particularly when I get better musicians than I am, which is always fun. Yeah. And, you know, if, you, if you're lucky enough to have a show or a series that runs over a period of time, you've got a real band. Rocco, we had that band together for five years. That's awesome. It was so much fun. You doing all this in New York or were you doing some in LA? Most of my work is in, in New York. And I have a couple studios that I really like. Yeah. Nice. I can record some here, but not, not a live, a full band with a grand piano, like Bored to Death had, you know, or... Right. I did one called uh, Feed the Beast. And, and there are other ones, uh, studios that I, I did a, a show called The Good Cop that starred uh, Tony Danza and Josh Groban. And that only lasted one year. But we had a band with, uh, an incredible band with Kenny Wollison on drums, uh, just a great band, grand piano with John Coward on piano, vibes. I played some guitar. Tony Shear played bass. Those, that was the core band. Cool. That's awesome. If I can get a band, I, I'll, I'll do it. But Dexter didn't call for a band. Yeah. It was a, more of an ambient, distant, cold, dark, solitary sound. <laughs> Well, it, uh, I listened to it this morning. I have a young daughter. I, I got up at like four o'clock in the morning, made my coffee, came out to the studio. I was like, all right, I'm going to listen to this soundtrack. And like when it's pitch dark outside, uh, it fit, it fit my atmosphere in the, in the morning. There was something that actually scared me, like some kind of thing that came out of nowhere. So, yeah. uh, anyway, it's a cool score. People should listen to it. I, I found it on Spotify. So we've got to talk about, I'm sure you've told your story a million times, so we can do like an abbreviated thing, but a little bit about how you got into music, what your musical roots are, kind of how you navigated this business, because that's kind of the core of this show is career journeys. So how'd you get started? Well, I started to play in bands when I was really young, but it was no concept of being an original band. We, like it was a show band or, a, you know, I was very young. It was sort of a country show band and we did some touring. And then I went to college. And I didn't have any much encouragement at all. I was not a music major. I did not study music. My folks, bless their hearts, did not want me to be a musician. But I kind of couldn't help it. And um, I moved to Paris after college. I, I went to college in Iowa as Amer an American studies major, which is sort of a hybrid American history, English, American literature. And I, I went to Paris to, I had a research grant and I was going to write a book about expatriate American jazz musicians living in Europe. And I didn't get that far, but I met quite a few and interviewed quite a few. And then I decided that it, that just wasn't going to work for me. I didn't want to be a writer, but I had a friend who told me that the composer John Cage was putting together musicians for a composition workshop performance. Oh, wow. And I, I worked with John Cage. That's amazing. And at the same time, I knew there was something going on in New York City, which was the scene at CBGB's and Max's Kansas City. All I wanted to do was move back to New York City and play either CBGB's or Max's Kansas City. And I ended up doing both. Nice. And that's kind of it. I was lucky enough to form these bands that you mentioned, Eight-Eyed Spy, 
started with a singer named Lydia Lunch and George Scott from a band called The Contortions. And then the Ray Beats formed with George Scott, Jody Harris, and Don Christensen, all from The Contortions. And George brought me in. Okay. And so those sort of two bands kind of formed at the same time and played at the same time. You could do that in New York City. I mean, you could play. Yeah. It was awesome. There were clubs to play in. And we toured a lot as well. When I was doing my research and kind of, you know, brushing up on things that were popping up in your past, I kind of noticed that New York or maybe maybe the world at that point, like uh, visual art and like writing and music, the art scene was like way more intertwined than I feel like it is today. At least my experience in Los Angeles, like it feels like, oh, you're a musician, you're in the music scene. Like back then, I feel like it was like this free-flowing art thing. Is that how it was? Oh, absolutely. Filmmakers were in bands. Choreographers would perform in the club with their dance group, dance troupe, if you will. Yeah, that's awesome. Indie filmmakers, Jim Jarmish, Amos Poe. Jim was in a band, Betty Gordon. I mean, people who were in bands were in these movies. Painters were in bands, Jean-Michel. Basquiat had a band. And you didn't have to go above... 14th Street either. You know, it was really happening in a small (laughs) little sliver of Manhattan called downtown. That's awesome. And it was like the center of the universe as far as I was concerned. Yeah, I mean, I guess there was like a little bit of that maybe like Laurel Canyon in like the 60s and 70s over here, but I don't know. It's not like that anymore. Is it like that in New York? Do you feel like there's still some of that left? Yeah, there definitely is. Okay. I just don't know about it. Okay. (laughs) It's happening somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. There is always something going on in New York. Always. And, you know, I went to a club the other night that, I mean, actually played at it that I didn't know anything about, but it was like a thriving scene with artists and painters and people hanging out. It's different. Rent is different. That's for sure. It costs more to (laughs) have a club. Yeah. And it's more difficult, but I would never say that there isn't anything going on. Okay. You know, there's definitely cool stuff happening. Great bands, cool labels. Yeah. You know, people like to make stuff and that's what's exciting about music. Maybe I'm just not cool in LA. Maybe that exists over here and I just spend all my time in studios and, and at home or something, but I don't, I don't know. I, I've always pictured New York as, as being that and some of the people that you know, I talked to, I know like all my friends over there, they're always at shows and stuff like that. But um, yeah, it just seemed like that era of New York was just a really kind of inspiring time to make any kind of art. So it's a cool spot to be in. It was pretty alive. Pretty alive. Yeah. It was pretty rough around here too. I mean, you know, I think the fact that rents were cheap helped. Yeah. You know, and there were great, there was the Village Voice, the Soho Weekly News, New York Rocker, East Village Eye. I mean, there was, a, there was kind of an infrastructure. There were writers, there were bands, and as you say, painters and artists, all kind of contributing to this cauldron of energy. Yeah, that's awesome. It's, it's kind of, uh, your career really takes shape a lot based on your surroundings. Like if you're around people that push you and inspire you, then I feel like that just elevates everybody when you can put yourself in a position to, to work like that. I totally agree. I mean, that's what I love about collaborating. Yeah. You know, you want to work with people. First of all, you want to work with people you want to hang out with. Always. But 
you want to work with people that also bring something new to the table and push you into places maybe that you haven't been before. Oh, yeah. So you were in Paris. You did some studying with John Cage. I know you, you play guitar, you play piano. Were you classically trained in any way? Were you like picking up, write, like reading music and writing music along the way? Where did you grab all those little skills from? I kind of picked it up along the way. I mean, my first instrument was clarinet. Okay. And my family lived in Cleveland, and I studied with the bass clarinetist with the Cleveland Symphony. Those lessons really have stuck with me to this day. He was, a, he was hard. <laughs> he, was, he was a taskmaster. And I played clarinet in the, you know, the high school orchestra and that type of thing. Right. And so I, I, was, I could read. I'm not a great reader, but I can read. And then when I got back to New York, I knew that I needed more. And so I took a course or two at Juilliard Extension School. I went to the Manhattan School of Music for orchestration. I, you know, picked it up along the way. Yeah. But when you do copy work for a bunch of musicians, you kind of learn on the job too. I learned more by doing that than anything. Yeah. You know, I knew that if I would orchestrate something too much in the mid-range, it would get muddy or something, and I needed to spread the chord out a little bit more. Just things, you know, you pick up along the way. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button, and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. Totally. You know, that's an interesting thing that uh, has never been discussed on this show. Orchestration in regards to, like you said, the frequency of something and, and how you can break things out. Would you be interested in summarizing a little bit about orchestration for people that are kind of deer in the headlights right now? Well, you know, interestingly, I would say that I had to orchestrate the synthesizers on Dexter as well. But you never, ever want to get in the way of the dialogue. Yeah. You want to stay away from the dialogue. Every word needs to be heard. So there, there are frequencies that you can, you can even play it on the piano like a, a, a vocal range that someone might have around, say, middle C. There might be someone up a little bit, you know, more alto range or then tenor or bass, whatever. And you try to stay away from that. Bernard Herrmann was a master at that in the Hitchcock soundtracks. He just created this pillow of exquisite sound that was eccentrically, often, you know, eccentric orchestration but he could spread it out and make it stand out from the dialogue in ways that, you know, are, are totally unique. Yeah. I always tell people to kind of produce or mix with like your focal point in mind. And it's like, well, you don't need a million things in the same range. Like, what do you have going on up here? But I never thought about dialogue in a TV show as, you know, basically the, the vocal in a pop song. Because I'm always thinking like, oh, I got the, the vocal, the vocal, the vocal, the vocal. That's really interesting, actually. I, I would have never even thought about that. <laughs> as obvious as it is. <laughs> um, that, that's amazing. 
your score stuff, you said you, you were doing your own copying. Is it mostly you or do you have assistance depending on projects or are you one man show on these things? I have had assistance, but I'm, I'm not like a operation. You know, it's me. There's not seven rooms behind out that door to the right. You got like a little army of people. Yeah, no. <laughs> I uh, wake up, shine my shoes, pack my lunch, do what I got to do. Write some music. A couple of people come to mind. A guy named John Sood was helping me with Pro Tools editing. Another composer named Brian Cavanaugh Strong helped me out with some copying. There have been there's some people who've, who've helped me out with a copying. So I don't want to give you the impression that I do that all by myself. Right. And, and really one of the reasons is that, is that there are people who are much better at it than I. And if I can afford that, I will get them. Yeah. Because you don't want any mistakes on the copying. It has to be just perfect when you put it on the stands for people to read. Yeah. And you want to have fun. You want the musicians to be their best. So if the charts don't look good, they're not going to have fun. And you want it to be played really well. Yeah, that's true. I've seen musicians kind of just like lose interest, you know, having to like fix this on bar 32. We need to make this, that. And, and it's just like all of the pencil grabbing and you can just see them like, oh my God, who did this? Like, how do we get here? When's this session over? Right. And uh, it gets a little bit more job-like <laughs> at that point. Yeah. So... But, it, but on that note, what's fun is when you've got a, a bunch of musicians together that have played and one will say, hey, man, I can put that up an octave and it'll, it's going to really sing. You know, little things like that. And yeah. I, I love that kind of input. Or did you really mean, like on a drummer, I'm thinking of the Dan Reeser who played drums on The Good Cop. Just saying, did you really mean that? You know, I was trying to, I was thinking like of a Miles Davis, so what? And I was, um, I wanted the, the, the drumming and, and he just knew it wasn't going to work. <laughs> you know, I had, a, I had a beat, simple beat, just written out one bar, but with a side stick in halftime. And uh, he goes, did you really mean that? You know, and I had to look at it and I go, no, you know. I, I like it when musicians are on my side. Yeah. They want to make it better. Yeah. That's why they're being hired, you know, to, to up the level. There was one time I uh, was usually wasn't recording guys like this, but I, I don't know if you've ever worked with Dean Parks, but I was recording Dean once, acoustic guitar. And, uh, you know, I was putting the mic where I think the mic goes and he just like kind of leans over and he's like, on this guitar, it goes over here. Yeah. And I was like, cool. All right. It's your guitar. You've had this for like 30 years. I'll put it right where you want. Exactly. So can we talk just a little bit, I know you played with the B-52s for a long time, guitar and keyboard. What was that experience like? Were you constantly on the road or was it, you know, you had some downtime to continue to work on other projects? Well, that's a good question, actually, because <laughs> it was a little of both. Kate, in the very beginning, asked me to be, they wanted to put together a band to tour behind Cosmic Thing, which is the record with Love Shack and Rome on it. And she called me up and we were just going to play for maybe three weeks or maybe six weeks. They didn't know. We didn't know if anybody was going to really like it. You know, we didn't know. Right. We played a party. We played uh, in the basement for a magazine. We played CBGBs and then we played Toads up in New Haven and a bunch of little clubs, just little clubs. And we started the tour across the United States 
And the record company said, why don't you come back and we're going to make this video. And we made Love Shack. We made the video. And they put it out on MTV and it just took off like a rocket. And we stayed out on the road for 18 months. That's crazy. That's a pretty long time. That was a crazy tour. We were booked into the Roxy in LA and they added a night and another night and then they changed it to the Hollywood Palladium and that sold out two nights. You know, we're, we're making our way across the country thinking, where are we going to play in San Francisco and LA? And we ended up playing the Greek. By the time you got there. <laughs> yeah. That's... And I've just never done anything like it. That's crazy. The band got huge. It was crazy. It got huge. Wow. I mean, it was amazing. And it just got more and more fun because nobody expected it. But I was writing music for cartoons. So I would, you know, by the time, you know, I had all my gear and like behind these walls, there are road cases and instruments and stuff. I still have them. And the road crew would load my gear into the room and I would write for the cartoon and we would book dates around my sessions in LA. It was fantastic. That's amazing. And then, you know, the, we would change the schedule around a little bit so that I could work on mostly cartoons, but there are a couple movies in there. I managed to make it work. Yeah. I didn't realize that you were playing with the B-52s before everything popped off. I just kind of made the poor assumption that, you know, things were working and then they, they brought people on board. But let me ask you about MTV, because MTV was super new at that time, right? Yeah, super new. Did people in the music industry think it was cool? What was the reaction to artists to MTV at the time? It was kind of cool. It was amazing to turn on a TV and see bands. Right. But then the, the, the downside was like, well, wait a minute. I have to be an actor? Wait a minute. I have to worry about how I look? And budgets, you know, it got kind of, I, I wouldn't say corrupted, but it changed quickly. Okay. You know, but it was just, a, in the beginning, it was a great place to, to see bands. Yeah. It was fun, and it happened fast. That's amazing. I mean, I grew up, I mean, I don't want to say I grew up on MTV, but I was watching MTV like every morning, you know, middle school, eating my cereal. Cool. And that's back when it was like 90% music, right? Now it's like 90% reality shows. And you got to go to another MTV to find a music video. But uh, it was a pretty awesome like thing to introduce people into records. I mean, that's probably how I ended up a musician because I was watching MTV all the time. Yeah, I mean, it was fantastic. And then they had shows that like we played like Downtown Julie Brown. Yeah. It was a great place to hear music. Yeah, that's cool. And there were, there were some bands that had amazing videos the police or the cars or, or, or whatever, you know, and then there were bands that weren't maybe as big, but had great videos like Romeo Void. And it was just a great place to see music. And then it, and then it just inevitably changed. I mean, budgets cut, cut kind of out of control. Oh yeah. One more thing to, to attach to your recoupable <laughs> amount on your record yeah. deal. <laughs> oh, I don't want to hear about that. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, well, the other thing came to mind while you, while you were talking, you talked about your, your rig, your composing rig that the road crew would carry around for you. I'm guessing this was a, a fairly large MIDI rig that you were working with at the time. Yeah, but it wasn't that slick. <laughs> I had to have a TV. 
and there were video cassettes. So it wasn't like QuickTime files on a computer. Right. And I had, uh, you know, some of them over here, rack-mounted synths. And um, I had, uh, you know, my laptop, my MacBook. And I would play guitar directly into the MacBook. I used Digital Performer. Okay. Which I still use. And, um, you know, there had to be an audio interface. It wasn't that slick. But I got the job done. Speaking of Digital Performer, that never comes up on the show. That's a composer favorite because of some of the timeline stuff, right? It's just better for changes in picture, is that? Yeah, the features for, for composing for a picture are just fantastic. Yeah. Markers, you can have streamers. Oh. It, it's just so fast, so quick. Now, Logic has also adapted a lot of the features that Performer uses. Yeah. But I... I know digital performers, so that's just all I know. Yeah. It also has it's a down and dirty copying feature, quickscribe or something it's called. But anyway, you can, if you round off the releases on the notes, you can, you can really read off some of those scores. That's cool. Quickscribe. And I, I, I use that from time to time. Okay. Really fast and dirty if I have to make changes, but it, it's workable and, and useful. Yeah. It also is very useful for me just to take a look at it, print it out and go, oh, I see this now. Yeah. I see what it is. And um, that helps me hear it. Yeah. When you write, are you ever writing just paper and pen? I know some people kind of like get into that. Not so much. I've worked with people that do that. Yeah. But I'm not good enough. That's not on my trick bag, but I, but I do do it from time to time. I like doing it actually. Okay. I love like roadmaps even. I love doing it because it just helps me formulate the idea and I can make a change just, oh, wait a minute. We've got to cut two bars. Well, there they are right there. I'll cut them out. That type of thing. Nice. That's awesome. So since we're kind of talking about your composing workflow and your writing, when you're sitting down to start a score on an episode or a movie or something, what are some of the, how do you start? Do you, are you at a piano? Or are you just sound designing? Are you just thinking? What's your process like? I like to read the script if I can. Mm. And I like to get to know what's on the picture, on the screen. I, I like to know what the art direction is and the environment. In Dexter, that was just crucial. The cold, the, the snow, the air that they would breathe. Uh, it just all contributed to the sound. Yeah. In Bored to Death, there was oh, something really interesting going on in the screen. And there was phenomenal art direction. Like a whole palette would be beige and then it would cut and it would be kind of greens. And, and, I, and I liked being a part of that, of the filmmaking process and the camera movement. Yeah. I like to move with the camera if I can. That's very cool. You know, sometimes it, it just is a matter of, of a couple good conversations with the director or the showrunner and trying out a few ideas. And sometimes it's just trial and error. Yeah. Do you ever find yourself doing battle between tent music and uh, director? <laughs> Occasionally, but I don't, I don't have a big beef with that. Okay. A temp score is there to help people formulate ideas. And, and I feel like it's up to me to understand what it is about that temp track. Yeah, sure. There've been some issues here and there at this point. I mean, yeah. I've done a fair amount of stuff over the years, but it never, you know, I don't have a big 
big beef with it. Okay. Makes me think about like doing a mix. It's, you know, it's like the rough mix already exists. It's, you know, paying respect to the emotion that's there. For anybody that's listening that is unfamiliar, tent music will be dropped in to kind of give people an emotion during rough cut. Is that correct, Pat? The best way to describe it? Yes, absolutely. You, there will be different cuts, you know, when you're assembling a scene, a sequence, let's say, with different shots. And an editor will really get comfortable using a piece of music from a, a previous score or another composer or even a song. And yeah, occasionally that can be that can be difficult because people can be living with that temp track for quite a while and you can get attached to it. But hopefully you'll get unattached. <laughs> yeah. Well, it helps with the pacing. And, and you were talking about how you kind of like look for cues on on picture. And I think I guess a lot of scoring is like really understanding the pacing that fits underneath what's going on to the point where it's not distracting. Right. It's got a like a great score happens as one, I guess. That's right. I mean, it's organic. It has to be part of the whole. If, if you're paying too much attention to the score, you're probably in trouble. <laughs> yeah. But it's nice when you, it pops out and you hear it and you go, oh, I want to hear more of that. Yeah. And you have to go find it later. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a few things, you know, during the pandemic, I can't think of any of them. But there's been a few times where I've actually thought, wow, this is really good music. I should, I should check to see who, who did this because I've watched a lot more TV since 2020. But um, yeah, I digress. Let's talk about your project Sus a little bit. I was listening to that before we jumped on here. And uh, it's very cool. It's like labeled as ambient country. Uh, it's got cool guitar stuff going on, a lot of keyboard stuff. Um, how'd that project come about? I, I thought it was very unique. I dug it. Oh, I'm so glad. We've got a new record coming out. Friday. Oh, nice. Okay. Well, that so when people hear this, that'll that'll be out for a couple months. But <laughs> oh, we'll make sure there's a link to it. Well, probably there'll be other th new things too. But um, y yeah, it started off with a bunch of guys all my age uh, who were in bands in the '80s. Let's say. Well, no, I, most of those guys were in a band called Rubber Rodeo, originally from Providence, and then later Boston. And we were we would meet for lunch at a at a deli on Fifth Avenue and Twenty Second, and just sort of hang out and have fun. And at one point, like a year or two in, somebody said, "You know, we should let's form a band." How about I got this idea for a band? What would it be like if Brian Eno produced Ennio Morricone? <laughs> so as Eno meets Ennio, that sounded pretty good to me. And we just you know, uh, had a lot of music in common and we made the, we make all those records here in my studio. That's awesome. It's all recorded here and the guitars, some of it's almost li all live on the first couple records. And then during the pandemic, we were doing things more remotely, but, um, now it's down to three of us. And we, last year we played South by Southwest. Cool. We have a great label called Northern Spy that is putting our stuff out and they're really supportive of us. You know, come on, this is, this is, this is cool. We're not like the young flavor of the month. This is kind of guys doing like odd ambient soundtrack type music. Yeah. Brian, you know, producing Ennio Marconi is an excellent description. So you guys nailed it. <laughs> That's good. It was cool. It's funny. I, I kind of like, I came from guitar roots and I kind of dabble 
like if I make music, I, it's kind of like leans a little bit ambient electronic, but I've never thought about taking, you know, my guitar that I played for like 20 years and mixing it with like the strange reverbed out, you know, synth sounds that I have going on. So you, you've inspired me to mess around a little bit when I ha have some free time. But uh, yeah, I think it's, I think it's super cool. Oh, I love that. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and no problem. I, uh, a question that I think you'd have a good answer for kids is along your career, you seem to do a lot of projects that at least for somebody that doesn't know you other than my research today, they're what you want to do. They sound like however you want them to sound. You don't really care. Well, I don't want to say don't really care, but you're doing what you want, basically. And uh, I think a lot of people spend a good chunk of their career maybe copying to learn, and then they forget to stop copying. Do you have any advice for people about staying authentic and like discovering what your sound is and maybe helping them get there faster? <laughs> well, be yourself. You know, just be yourself. Like, I can't change who I am. I can never say that I studied at the Eastman School of Music, or I can't say that I'm classically trained. I can just be myself. I'm really fortunate to have been in a band, the B-52s, that had a couple top 10 records. But that band got there not by copying anybody else. They just, there's no one sounds like the B-52s. It's true. And, um... I think it's just who you are. I mean, with soundtrack music, you want to just do it right. If it's mysterious, you want to write something mysterious. If it's tense, it's got to be tense. But you bring yourself into that. Yeah. Now, there are composers that have influenced me greatly in soundtrack stuff. Some you can probably tell, but, you know, Ry Cooter with Paris, Texas, just slays me. I love that soundtrack. Trent Reznor, The Social Network. I mean, that's just phenomenal. It's really good. Chernobyl. Like when we were in the very beginning talking about a sound for Dexter, I said, you know, let's listen to Chernobyl. And the sound of the, like with Dexter, like they could understand like the snow and walking on the snow. Like we're going to start combining those into the sound and uh, a breath. And, um, so it's not like I, I, you work in a vacuum. Right. I'm not afraid to listen to a soundtrack. I love the score for a film, that uh, The Lost Daughter, for instance. But I'm not going to copy it. I love it because it's good. But my advice really is just to be yourself and tell the truth. I love that. It, it, sometimes it's just one of those things that people have to hear every once in a while because you can get lost. But uh, yeah, the sooner you just discover your taste and your like just embrace whatever you are, then you can, like you said, you can participate in anything you want. That's right. But you're going to bring your little thing to it, you know? Right. Yeah, so that, that that's great advice. But yeah, that's kind of the thread that I took away from listening to some of your work today is that, you know, you have a unique tonality. You obviously, you come through in your work, I think. Um, there's not like copycat nonsense or anything like that, so. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. I really appreciate that. Do you teach currently or you have done some teaching? I do teach currently. I wanted to ask, what are some of the things you really want your students to walk away with? I'm sure one of them is be yourself, which we just covered. But is there anything else like when somebody walks out of the, the seminar or the, the class that you really want to take away? Yeah, the importance of collaboration and the fact that the music, the score is not about you. 
It's about the film. It's about the TV show. It's not about you. So if 10 seconds need to get cut out at the last minute, it's not about you. They're not doing it to make your life miserable. It's to, for whatever reason, either something practical or the network needed a change or, and I didn't really know that that well when I was starting. I didn't really understand how things worked from a rough assembly to a rough cut to a producer's cut to a editor's cut to a network cut, whatever. And it's just the importance of working with the people that are around you, the editors, the showrunner, music supervisor. Yeah. You know, these are all people who want to make it better. You want to be the person that they want to talk to. That's a great answer right there. <laughs> Being the person people want to talk to. Nobody, nobody wants to be the bad guy. Like, oh, we have to go tell the composer we need to change this cue. And, that, and you, you make the intern do it because nobody wants to talk to him. He's going to lose his mind. Oh, it's Pat. Pat's on the phone again. Oh, no. <laughs> you talk to him. <laughs> He's going to complain about the deadline. No, 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 no. You don't want to be that guy. No. I, I worked for a guy who, who uh, we'll leave his name out. And uh, every once in a while when like he was really getting you know, feisty about something. He would, you know, dictate an email for me to send off to some, you know, director or, or producer, depending on whether we're doing film or, or music. And then as soon as I hit send on the email, he would then be like, okay, cool, call him and tell him that I sent them an email. And I was like, I'm sorry, we just emailed him. Now you want me to call him and tell him that you emailed him. I'm just like, nobody wants to get that phone call. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I love it now. And it's like, you see the email, you're reading it, and then you get a text. I just sent you an email. You know, I, hey, I got it, pal. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you. Uh, yeah, well, what you mentioned about the, you know, the score being in service of the film, I've had a, a couple composers, TV or, or film on the show, and that's like the one thing that everybody says is that the first thing you have to do to be a successful composer is to understand that if somebody wants a change to your music, it's not because they don't like your music. It's because right. they're watching the movie and something needs to change in the music for them to enjoy the movie. It's not like... Some people take things personally, you know? Uh, so that's great advice for young composers. Pat, I've got a couple questions that I end every show with. One is a newer one. Are there any albums or artists that you're listening to right now that you just really enjoy that you think more people should be listening to? Is there anything the world is sleeping on? I feel like you would have a great suggestion. Oh, Yeah. There's a composer goes by the one one name uh, Rachika in New York. Just great album. I don't know the name of it off the top of my head, unfortunately. I can look it up, but I love that. There, there's a pedal steel player making music called Chuck Johnson. There's a, a a woman cello player who has just made a great record named Clarice Jensen. She's played with Max Richter and Johan Johansson and. Her new record is is beautiful. Man, I could go on. <laughs> I just love hearing new things. That's awesome. I mean, Mika Levy isn't so new, but I just listened to Mika Levy last night. And, you know, I, I just, any opportunity I can, there's a, a new music group called uh, Acme that there's some great bands that just are doing, you know, phenomenal things, like in, not only in the rock scene, but in classical music as well. So I just named a handful. That's great. I'll, I'll try to grab as many as I can and, and throw them in the notes. I'm sorry. Richika comes to mind. Chuck Johnson. Luke Schneider has this really cool collection of pedal steel music. Okay. That is abstract and weird and fantastic. 
Yeah, this Bill Frizzell has a new record. I love I love Bill Frizzell. Yeah. But younger bands, you know, I, I would just put Rachika at the top of the list. Cool. Awesome. Yeah, I feel like this question is going to turn into just a bunch of morning listening for me. <laughs> just new, new stuff to find. So I think it's, it's going to be a fun question. Uh, but the two questions that I traditionally close the show with are, uh, one, was there a time in your career that you chose to redefine what success meant to you? You know, you can spend a lot of time looking over your shoulder, wishing that you were doing something else. How come that person got that job and I didn't? Yeah. Or how come that band is playing there and I can't? And it's just not healthy. It doesn't really get you anywhere. And I love, I think success is about the music you're making. And it's a challenge sometimes to be happy with the music you're making. It can be challenging. But I don't know that I've ever redefined it. I don't know if I've ever thought about it. I've just sort of done it. There are times where I've been horribly broke. Yeah, and I would think about, oh my God, I don't know whether I can do this anymore. It's not happening. But I don't think I changed anything. I just, you know, just managed to uh, move on to something else. Yeah. No, that, that's a great answer. The, um, yeah, no one's ever answered the question that way. And it is true. It's like you can really get stuck, like you said, looking over your shoulder, which is, you know kind of where this show came from a little bit where it's like, you know, when I set out to work in this industry, I thought I would do this and, you know, I'm doing this. And there was like a reckoning moment, you know, you know also probably like in my early thirties at the time, but I just kind of realized that like, no, doing the job, making records, making music with people you love, like that's the thing. Like the chances of mixing a number one song are, they're tiny. Like that can't be your bar for success. It's not going to bring you happiness. So uh, it's a great answer. I'm all for it. And then our last question, kind of in the same lines as as that one, is uh, what is your current biggest goal right now that you can share with us? And what's the next smallest step you're going to take to go towards it? Well, you know, a small goal is to get through the Bach inventions <laughs> and. Um, you know, I like creating new new challenges for myself, but I don't I don't know that I have new new goals. I mean, you know, I'm anxious. I just feel like I want to make more music. Yeah. More music. That's really it. I mean, and the fact of the matter is, I'll tell you, like when I'm teaching and I'm looking over the room and there's 20 kids in the seminar, they're, they're not all kids. Some of them they're these are adults, it's master. They're masters at both NYU and at Brooklyn College. And they're not all going to be writing music for film and television. But the world needs more of us. The world needs us. That needs these guys and young men and women in the, in the world. That discipline of writing that kind of music is just everybody's valuable or rigorous as an economics major or literature or philosophy or business. It takes a lot of courage and willpower to do that. And if you pivot and you go into another position, you are going to be an asset no matter where you go. And as far as I'm concerned, an education in the arts will prepare you for anything. And I want to see more of these people in the world rather than 
let's say on Wall Street with people who are coming in with with degrees from business school or something. I want to see somebody with a fine arts degree doing something. I, that's the person I want to see at a company or as my state senator or whatever, you know. I, yeah, if you're a musician or an artist or something, there are so many like internal struggles that you have to conquer to like live, you know, your career to the fullest that you're right. If everybody working everywhere had a little bit of those things that artists have to deal with and learn how to like work through some some of the crazy shit that artists have to work through to, you know, feel like they made it. They, yeah. None of the, you're right. They would be unstoppable as as a doctor or a Wall Street person. You're just like, oh, yeah. Yeah. That's a really interesting perspective. I love that. Thanks. Yeah. Pat, this has been, this has been a great hang. Obviously, it's the end of my day and I got up early. It's the end of your day. You got up early. Please share with people anything that you'd like, projects that you're working on, places people can find you if they want to work together or your classes, whatever, whatever you'd like to share. This is your little spot to share. Well, I, you can go to my website. I think you can get in touch with me there. You know, oddly, the Dexter soundtrack is the first soundtrack I've ever had released. I've never had another soundtrack released. So now I've kind of got the bug and I, you, you might be able to see over my shoulder, I found boxes of the Rocco's Modern Life mastered recordings and tapes. And I'd like to make those available. Um, I really love the band Sus. And I'm, you know, like I said, this Friday, we've got an EP coming out. I don't know when that'll be for when this is available, but, you know, you can go to the Sus website. We're on Bandcamp, Spotify, Apple, Amazon, all that stuff, Pandora. I think we're on that. I don't know. But um, you can find us, and I want to keep making music with that band. I think we've got a lot of territory to cover, and we're doing it. We've got, you know, even though we have a record coming out this week, we've got another one in the works. Amazing. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm feeling really lucky. And it's cool. It's different than being in a, in a real, like, say, pop band. We don't have to have a number one hit. I mean, there's no way we're going to have a number one anything. But, uh, <laughs> but we get to make records. And so I, I'd love it if people who listen to this music would find that music. And, and if that turned them on, that'd be cool. Nice. Amazing. That's awesome. I, and and uh, yeah, I, I will reiterate that Sus is very cool, very unique. People should definitely check it out. Quick question before we go. The Rocco tapes, how, how does that work from like a master rights thing, can you release that or do you have to like go through hoops? No, how's that going to work? Do you know yet? Yeah, no, I'm going to have to go through hoops. I've tried to go through hoops before, but without much luck, but you know, maybe the big hand of time will work in my favor. You know, there's a lot of people who like that show. Yeah. I remember that show. Yeah. And that band was awesome. Yeah. I mean that, that Art Barron, the trombone player. I mean, he played with Duke Ellington. Kevin Norton on drums with Anthony Braxton and Rob DeBellis was on Woodwinds. It was in Don Byron's band. Uh, you know, it's just a really good bunch of musicians and the music is cool. And I'd love to get it out there. But yeah, I'm going to have to go through hoops. Yeah, you can check back in because maybe there's a big old wall on the other side of that hoop. <laughs> well, best of luck of, of doing battle with that one. Thank you. I hope to see it out. But Pat, this has been awesome. I'll let you get back to your evening. Thanks so much for taking the time and, and chatting with us. Cool. Thank you so much for having me.
So that's it for episode 83. Thanks to Pat Irwin for coming on the show. Thanks to all of you for listening. If you've been enjoying the show, please subscribe and take 10 seconds to maybe text this episode to a friend you think might enjoy it. That is the best way to help spread the word about the show. And finally, thanks to my editor, Stephen Boyd, for the great audio edit on this episode. And I will see y'all next time.